Hi, and welcome to the Miseducation of BSLP. My name is Ingrid, and I'm one of your hosts. And my name is Ashanti. I am your other host. And we are back for season seven, or for episode seven. (laughs) Season seven. (laughs) You're speaking it into existence, season seven. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm already there. I'm already there. manifestation baby oh boy oh boy (laughs) so we welcome you back for this very very interesting episode me and ashanti have been kind of dialoguing you know we've been kind of talking about our careers how we've operated what it's like to be a speech pathologist from our different lenses how we've operated in clinical practice all of that we've kind of covered all the gauntlets of uh areas right Mm -hmm. so now what so now I think we should dig into different uh, parts of the actual act of practicing. Mm. How do you practice? What is it that we utilize? Mm. <laughs> and why did you and I practice in such a different kind of way in comparison Correct. to what the majority of people kind of practice like, and that has to do a lot with how the academic environment teaches us to practice and how we evaluate that in comparison to the patients we're seeing. Because I think there's a gap between the academic environment and the actual work itself. And people will notice that in the aspects of like, just how you write documentation, how you write an eval how you write a treatment plan, how mm-hmm. much time you have allotted to you. We see mm-hmm. the gaps in that from the academic yes. sector to, you know, practicing for real. But there's other components in which we need to really start digging into. And that that circulates a lot around the condition of our culture in speech pathology to think about evidence-based practice singularly as this must all be research-based. Right. Right. And that, you know, to to try to connect one episode to another, you know, you had mentioned in, a, in another episode, well, I, I as well, there are certain things that you need to know and do with a client that is not white, um, that's just not available to you in the research or the evidence-based practice, you know, gold standard things that we're fed or, you know, uh, encouraged to utilize in our practice. And even when they are white and they have a different diagnosis, like let's say autism, what is normative? Right. What is normative for an autistic person or a deaf and hard of hearing person? What's normative for a deaf and hard of hearing person? And did we do our research in a way to make sure that the norm for a deaf and hard of hearing person when it comes to communication is in within the parameters of ASL as well as oral, as well as with, you know, the utilization of trying to assimilate to our society instead yes. of allowing society to kind of expand. Because the reality is we've become more and more diverse as the generations have moved forward from 1980s, 1990s, 2000s. There was mm-hmm. diversity before, but we weren't allowed in those research spaces, Right. Well, yes, there there was diversity before, but also I don't know that the researchers were considering to give a voice or or um, consider the opinion of those that were being researched. You know, a big example you just said is the deaf and hard of hearing community. 
a lot of research was being done, but were they included in, in, you know, asked, what is it that you guys want? Instead of us just trying to bring them closer to the normative line, you know, baseline or whatnot. Mm hmm. And so that's what leads to these really aggressive conversations that we're having in our practice today, how we're having these individual teachers in all these different sectors, all these different experts, you know, we got the neurodivergent expert, we've got the black, you know, AAE communication expert we have, and it all stems from one singular problem, Mm -hmm. how we (laughs) consider evidence-based practice. (laughs) That's the one singular problem. This is not a problem for people that have kind of processed the out of the cultural concept. If you think about evidence-based practice outside of the cultural concept that it's about just research only, you're doing all right. You're doing all right because you've evaluated and determined that there's not research for it. And there's other aspects to evidence-based practice that we can incorporate to do really patient-centered care. Right, right. And so in that, we find ourselves in a circumstance in which we want to kind of set the understanding as to how we got here, (laughs) then explain what we're still doing, and then discuss how we can change that, right? Yes, right. So how did we get here? Well... 92% of the speech language pathologists profession, professional body is white. And (laughs) it's not, (laughs) you're pronouncing the H in that word, white. (laughs) White. And it's not, you know, I want to make sure that that I make it very well known that we're not throwing shade at, you know, the white population of the profession. We're not saying that it's being done wrong because it's majority white. This is just the reality of the makeup of our professional body, right? And so with 92% of our fellow SLP professionals being white, that means that the greater percentage of the researchers, of those that are doing research, asking research questions, you know, deciding what to look at, deciding what to study, deciding what to write their papers on, they will also be predominantly white. And so what does that do to the norms, to the standard deviations, to, you know, all of these data points that we are constantly utilizing um, in our assessments. And it's appropriate because I will say, if we want to give it a historical content context, we're mm-hmm. looking at a country that really created the United States of America to have one concept about what is the center of norms, okay. you know, how people operated in our society and in our spaces, the spaces of success and how you should be was predominantly created by overseers um, and people that were like saying, okay, we don't see you as human. We're going to keep you separate. We're the normal people. We're great. And so they just kept that up. Even though society was diversifying, they were still saying we're more of the norm. And so for researchers that are predominantly from that culture, they're going to continue to identify that as the norm. Right. It's going to be difficult 
intrinsically for you to be like, but is it the norm? Because it's not right. really it doesn't make sense for you to think that way, right? It's supposed to be somebody that's outside of that space who cannot assimilate in the manner in which you want them to. Mm -hmm. Those are the people that create the new sciences that we're experiencing right now. Mm -hmm. It's because there's a diversity in the scientists that are out there operating with a sense of like, but what about AAE right. as a norm? I was just going to, you know, try to bring that up as well. You know, it because of how we have been taught, you and I, Ingrid, this this is the grammatical structure that we, we are supposed to speak in, um, express ourselves in. This is the grammatical structure we are to utilize when we write. Correct. Um, so now with us recognizing AAE. It's really difficult in the school setting for me to explain to a teacher, hey, this is cultural. Um, this is how they communicate at home. And why? while, yes, it's not what you're teaching from this textbook, but it also doesn't mean that this child is automatically going to qualify for my services. And that's where, <laughs> unfortunately... We are advocates in some aspects, but we are behind the curve in so many areas of, of, of this ability to do the job with the heightened level of patient-centered. There is a component that I consider that it should be dual because when I was growing up, I had a multi-language home mm -hmm. and I had to learn a new additional strength with American English. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to doing services for a child that is from, let's say, AAE and may think about language a different way than traditional mainstream America, and you have to go through mainstream America school, yeah. I don't want to call you disordered, but I do understand that you have a weakness in your ability to think and receive and understand language in the same way. So how do I create the ability to strengthen you in that manner without calling you disordered? And that's right. a weird space. For it's any... a slippery slope. It's a right. slippery slope. Mm -hmm. So we're going to probably advance in the practice of speech pathology much more quickly than the school systems, than the hospitals, right. things like that. Right. We really will. Our practice will end up being like, well, is it? it's functional. So I think they're going to be all right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, yeah. that's, that's where we'll land. So when I think about that, I'm like, okay, we understand that there's weakness in the research because of this context. And when I say we, I mean, speech language pathologists, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there is the SLP data initiative. You can Google it, look it up. It's the website, the SLP data initiative.com. It has revealed that speech pathologists also feel like our research is a little bit weak. Yeah. And to a higher percentage from mildly a strength all the way to, uh-uh, this is super weak. I'm not about this. And the reality of that being the case that speech pathologists, when they're out there practicing and doing this work, are feeling like there's weakness in the research we have to acknowledge that maybe we need to rethink 
our cultural perception of what evidence-based practice means. Because it's not just about, hey, let's use research-based items and make that the number one priority is to get those objectives that are created by these research-based situations, whether it be mm -hmm. the intervention, the assessment, all of that. So what do practitioners have to kind of do when the research they've identified, not so great, and then there are two other aspects to evidence-based practice which we continue to ignore. Do you know <laughs> what those are, Ms. Ashanti? <laughs> Let's dig in, shall we? <laughs> oh, yes. Gosh. All right, evidence-based practice. What is it? Three distinctive components, right? We're, gonna, we're, we're If you're building a Lego building, right? Because <laughs> I work with kids and I always have toys. Wow. We've, we've got three pillars, okay? Three pillars. We need all three pillars for, for it to be functional. So the first one being the best available external evidence from systematic research. Should I say it again? I think you need to say it again. For the okay. Back. <laughs> all right. Pillar one, the best available external evidence from systematic research. So what is that? Let's de let, let's demystify what that is. That is the actual process of looking at research within and outside of our discipline. Right. Right. Ain't okay, that crazy? So it's crazy. It's crazy that we're going to look outside of ourselves. What? Are you serious? I cannot believe it, girl. What? Okay. All right. Pillar number two. Grab some more Legos. Here we go. The best available evidence internal to clinical practice. Oh, snap. Oh, snap. Okay. So now, now we're looking. Yes, we're working inward. We're looking at what we have available, what we have created, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Then pillar number three the best available evidence concerning the preferences of a fully informed patient. Bear, bear, bear. <laughs> That's there the money shot right there. That, That's the money there it shot. Is. Now, there is, there is a component in there about your clinical expertise. So there is that breakdown for those three pillars as well, because that's the internal component as well. It is your yes. clinical expertise as a practitioner yourself. Yes. So external has to do with outside of you, the science and all that stuff, and with other, other sciences out there. The internal comes from the clinical practitioner and their development of their science throughout their profession. And then patients. Yep. Those are, those are them. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, in case you guys are wondering, because I know you are, because SLPs do such things, we are referencing some information from a very interesting article that we may have mentioned in the previous episode, but we didn't really get time, have time to dig into it. So, and we will absolutely be discussing it <laughs> in our next episode and breaking it down because it's a beautiful piece of resource. It's also on our website yeah. and it is available for you to go look into it, read it. It's super great. Yes. And it's from Ireland. <laughs> it's outside of us. What? 
what? <laughs> so when we are discussing evidence-based practice in our culture to kind of focus in a lot on research that has to do with what was normative, what was studied, blase, blase, that holds this like high level of hierarchy. But this is a triangle. Mm -hmm. These components need to be worked out on what, where we need to shift and how. And unfortunately, because the patient population is what it is, and the student population is what it is, mm -hmm. we do have to more heavily lean on what are we doing for our patients? Yes, I'm a speech language pathologist. I have an assessment I can give your child. It's normed against this type of population. That's how you have an informed conversation with a parent. So it's going to present like your child is this way, but mm -hmm. that's because it's working uh, with this as the norm, which your right. child doesn't have to be. So when doing that, when practicing this care and informing patients or informing families, you do have to register, I did this assessment that is based on this type of population, and this is not the population that your child or your yourself, that it's not based off of you. Right. But I'm going to use this as a tool to help develop strategies to get us where you want to go because this is my resource that I have right now. I have no other. I'm not going to generate something that isn't at all researched, yeah. but I'm not going to make it my highest priority to get you to the norm. Right. I, I'm going to shift my mindset around the results of that test in comparison to you as a different diagnosis from the people that were tested for that assessment a different cultural background from the people, a different, you know, mm -hmm. entire life experience. Like, could you imagine, did they study non-binary parents and that, that cultural shift with those children? Did we do studies on how those children process language, operate cognitively? No, we have nothing no. for that. Yeah. So the population is expanding and changing up certain contexts, but we still only have the same resources that we have. So we have to acknowledge that. Right. Right. Now, in, in acknowledging that, you know, something that you've touched on just now is that we need to put that, th the, the thing I read third, the third pillar first, we need to ask the client, the patient, the, the student, the parent, we need to ask them, what is it that you want? How is it that you would like to be um, operating or speaking or communicating or whatever it is that you're working on with that, with that person? Where do you see yourself? And I feel as if a lot of clinicians kind of miss that because there's such a push in having standard, you know, standard scores and, and all those data points that we have to have for, dare I say it, insurance coverage purposes. Absolutely an important element. Money, baby. Let's yeah. Get money. Yeah. And it, it, it's a rock and a hard place, unfortunately. Right. Evidence-based practice in general that's research heavy had to do with the fact that science is very, very quantitative. It's all about those numbers. Yes. All about those numbers. I'm going to reimburse based on these numbers, these things that say 
what you're doing is specifically correlating to this outcome and we're going to reimburse this amount this way for Mm -hmm. that. And in areas like physical therapy, even occupational therapy, there's more opportunity to have that because certain things are just known. Like, right. It just, it's just objective enough and consistent across any PT. Every PT will do Correct. it. Correct. I have feel like numbers. I, mm-hmm. we touched on that, I believe in season two in that, you know, when comparing our practice to that of the physical therapist, a physical therapist will say, okay, can they, amb- they can ambulate this many feet with or without assistance. You know, it's, it's very much, um, gosh, I hate to put it that way, but black and white, you know, it, it, there's no gray area in that. Right. Right. There's nothing our wrong with profession. saying it that way. There's yeah. Yeah. Because it is. <laughs> It's very objective. It's very it's easy. Objective. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to go that for every person we've ever met, they need to do it this way. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that a patient who might have failed in physical therapy that goes to a different country and has a different experience without the same measurements and can make improvement? Absolutely. We see it all the time with international research because- mm-hmm. Our research is one thing. International research is something else. And they have their own methods and they do their care their own way and so on and so forth. However, for speech, Lord. <laughs> Lord of mercy. I have never in my life, <laughs> in my life, understood that this is a, like anything more clearly to me. This is a qualitative discipline. This is yes. about the quality. And so... We are targeting function, not objective information. We are like, Mm -hmm. we need to get you there. So you can put 10 SLPs that have all gotten the MBSIMP into a radiology suite. Mm -hmm. All 10 of them are going to perform the swallow different, swallow assessment differently. Mm -hmm. They may or may not have a radiologist that they need to deal with in that same suite. They're going to identify a variety of ranges of deficits. And some of the experience comes out to being a situation where some are like, this is functional. I'm going to risk it, even though it looks bad. And some SLPs are like, I'm not going to risk it. It looks bad. So you have different opinions on something that has a standardized type of uh, education, which is the MBS IMP. So many SLPs are coming out with that under their belts because it's a required thing. But it doesn't make the practice any more consistent for reimbursement purposes. It doesn't because we are qualitative. What is the quality of the care? Mm -hmm. So we're struggling with that, but we need to own that. Own it. That needs to be at the forefront. We need to find a way to make that equally as lucrative because it's quality of life we're achieving here. Yes. And that deserves some value. Yeah. It should have more value than it does. You know, it's, it's, it, again, it should be the forefront of our, um, our means of continuing with any client. And what that's is it how, that you want? How can we, how can I get you home, you know, from this rehab center to where you are functional, to where this makes sense for how you want to live? Right. Absolutely. And the more we can figure out how to do that for people that are really great at communication all the way down to, ooh, okay, so my student's family 
is Filipino and they have dialectal differences Mm -hmm. such as saying pucking instead (laughs) of and that was the language model for that child right right that language model was for that child they do not have f's in that language and so here comes Susie, speech therapist, well-meaning, fresh out of, you know, grad school. And she's like, all right, we're going to do this. Goldman Fristo, test of articulation. He is not making these this F sound. Mm-hmm. Boom, on mm-hmm. caseload. Boy. Is that appropriate? Now, there, there should be the conversation with family members. Hey, I understand you guys are from the Philippines, and this is not a phoneme that is normally utilized or um, uttered in the way that American English, you know, does it. Do you want us to work on that? Would you like us to work work towards that with your child? Mm-hmm. Depending, like I said, depending on their ability to understand that too. We all right. have to modulate our communication, especially when we're like, Ooh, that's a difficult, I don't, I don't know how well they understand versus not like, there's a ton of varying people to consult. Like I can't inform my stroke patient that the WAB is normed on. Like I can't do that because they're impaired cognitively. So I can call up a spouse, a friend or whatever, but if they are alone in the world, I have to have the clinical discernment, the Mm -hmm. clinical awareness and the clinical sensitivity to really do the research, even without that patient's ability to participate, to make it as appropriate as I can based on the knowledge that I have about the patient, where they're from, you know, what kind of life they had, like, why do you need to balance a checkbook if all you do is lawn work? Right. Right. I mean, I just need to get you to the point where you can function at the level that you did prior to now. You're not going to go, you know, to an accounting session. Like that's just not what you're, yeah. it's not relevant to your life. So I have to make that decision even without you, if I'm really being sensitive to you, but that does grow over time. It yeah. wasn't, I didn't walk out the gate doing that, but it right, did grow right. over time. It grew now, over time. To, f- to flip the coin on that student scenario, um, if I, if I were the SLP and I go into the classroom and the teacher's like, I can't understand a word he's saying, then yeah, maybe it's something that we need to work on because this is possibly going to affect his his grade, his academics. Right. right. So, you know, it's it's one of those things that you really have to put your clinical hat on and decide what is best for the student what it, or client, patient, whomever. What is it that this person needs? How can we get them to be functional? How can we get them to to reach the level that they are trying to achieve? Absolutely. And mm-hmm. so there's there's so many things to consider, which is why if you start with the patient first mm-hmm. and then work your way backwards based on your clinical expertise and the research that's available to you. And when I say the research that's available to you, it's not just American research, just so you know. Hello. <laughs> Go to your international partners. There's not a yes. ton of countries that practice speech language pathology, and a lot of them are also very white. However, <laughs> we have to consider that maybe they may look at it from a different lens just simply because it's a different culture altogether. Right. And there may be a level of 
less exclusionary practices simply because there's a more there's more of a sense of like we've been we're a young country in the sense of accepting diversity as equal and even in that it's it's still you know we're marching up and down streets talking about that so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're relatively young in that and that's reflective of our research that's reflective of how we do care it's reflective in all those things is that we're relatively young in it maybe international spaces are not so young which is why we're introducing this article from ireland and it's simply because it ha- it offers exactly what we really need in clinical practice at this point. And there's tons of others, and we will be reviewing as many as we can to kind of share this information with you. Um, and like I said, you'll have access to it on our website. We'll keep you know pushing things along. There's also our IG, so we'll keep looking at that. But really, we want you to have these resources available to you so that you can understand like, Evidence-based practice doesn't have to just be I'm using normed information. Mm-hmm. It could be I'm clinically seasoned enough and I've had enough experiences in different ways to where I feel like I've got this and it isn't based on trying to make everybody part of the norm, but actually just isolating things to functional qualitative spaces. Yes. And the the other component of really just saying, okay, I am okay with the fact that some research is just limited. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. It's a little narrow. That's okay. There's nothing That's wrong okay. with it. Mm-hmm. But don't make it the number one thing that we seek to get people to assimilate towards. That's no longer the objective, especially right. with everything that's coming out with everyone that's participating in the discussions. So that's what we really want to encourage is the idea like, all these different discussions that you're seeing with people coming out in their lanes and saying, you know, this is what I know and this is how you need to do the care for our particular, you know, subgroup or whatever, all has one single theme. The patient comes first. Yes. Put the patient, put the client first. 100%. Mm-hmm. So we are going to wrap up this episode. Thank you so (laughs) much for your time. Um, We'll be continuing the breakdown of what that article really um, kind of revealed. And we're just going to actually compare it to what the academic environment has told us and shared with us in terms of how we do practice and compare it to how this article is like saying there's another way of going about this and seeing where we fall and being able to shift the perspective Mm -hmm. of how speech pathology needs to go and create something that's a little bit more embracing. Because I don't like getting feedback from an autistic person that I did not do care that they liked or a deaf and hard of hearing person that I did not do care that they liked or a stuttering student that didn't like how I did the care because I was so regimented in Mm -hmm. thinking about it in one normative way. I don't like that kind of feedback. So I want to critically assess it and I want to change my practice. So that that's the initiating aspect of why I personally changed the way that I did the care. Mm-hmm. Until next time, Ashanti. <laughs> same bat channel, same bat time. <laughs> All right. Well, then. Talk to you next time. Yes. Have a wonderful mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye.